Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harvin here with you. Let's start with Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. Rep Mark Pocan is his Twitter handle, his website, pocan.house.gov. And Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. And happy 4th of July, a day in advance. Absolutely happy to the listeners. Yeah. A question I have for you, which is sort of political, strategic, and sort of, you know, patriotic American values, and, and I'm not sure what else, but it is being reported, and I think just kind of common sense would indicate the, w- the way that the Trump administration, I mean, they've known for apparently a couple of weeks that this report from the inspector general that oversees the Border Patrol was going to come out and show that they've just got brutal and cruel conditions going on down there. And they're not trying to head it off or change anything in any big substantial way. It seems like their base, their white racist hate-filled base, is actually delighted by the fact that these kids are in cages and women and children are being told to drink out of toilets and things. Rush Limbaugh yesterday said drinking out of a toilet is better than what they're normally used right. to, or words to that effect. So the base is actually loving this, and I think Trump is very happy with this publicity. How do Democrats, and for that matter, how do Americans of conscience who are shocked and horrified by refugees, I mean, these are not people coming here looking for a job. These are people fleeing disasters in their own countries, the disasters that were largely created by the United States between climate change and the political upheaval down there that Reagan you know, began. How do we respond to this? And what does this say about America? That you've got probably as many as a third of Americans, you know, the Fox News watchers and the right-wing hate radio listeners who think that, oh yeah, this is a good thing. Well, first, I mean, it's absolutely unconscionable. I've been to some of these facilities previously, the Super Walmart Center that had 1,500 kids in it. You know, even then, and this is quite a while ago before they've had the, the capacity issues they have now, the average amount of square footage that a child had was about 40% less than a Supermax inmate. So, you know, you had that problem. Now it's even worse as far as the uh, overcrowding, the conditions, no soap, no toothbrushes, lice infestation, go down the list. And I do think that this is Donald Trump 
continuing in Donald Trump's mind, which I try not to delve into too much, in order to express that he thinks this is a way to tell people not to come here. That he doesn't realize is they're leaving great violence and a lot of other issues that are far more severe, and they're willing to take the risk in order to get to a country that they see leads when it comes to freedom and opportunity and aspiration to have a family that's not going to be living in the violence they're going to live in. So it's not going to work. In fact, the surge that we've seen, so to speak, has been because he said he's going to put a border wall up. He's created this surge, and then he's handling it in the complete wrong way because previously people were left on their own recognizance with some other programs in place that were far cheaper, and 95-plus percent were showing up to the asylum hearings. This is just a Donald Trump can try to, one, be tough, like all his dictator buddies seem to do in their countries, and two, send a message that they shouldn't come, but it's not working. So the message really is to his base, look what I'm doing, I'm with you, but I think at the end of the day, Tom, he loses on this, because when I've seen polling, very, very recent polling, his message at most gets to 41%. Our message at worst gets to about 61%. Pathway to citizenship for aspiring Americans, 68%. People really do get this. Uh, they know that their mm. family came, and they often have an immigrant in their family who worked hard to get here to have opportunity for their family. And when they see kids in these conditions, even the most hardened, even conservative voters find this reprehensible. So he may be appealing to Rush Limbaugh. I think he already has Rush Limbaugh's support, but I think he's turning off a whole lot of other people, and we just need to keep being very aggressive and vigilant in showing the conditions and talking about what's going on. Yeah, and what's so ironic, two out of three of his wives are immigrants. His youngest son is what Michelle Malkin used to call an anchor baby, and, and Melania's parents are what Donald Trump refers to as chain migration. They just got citizenship for them last Last year, I think it was, or the year before. It's just bizarre. Had he been a Democrat, you know, Fox would be treating this completely differently. It would be a huge scandal, it seems to me. But anyhow, David in uh, Kanahoe, Hawaii? Yes, good morning. Kanahoe, Hawaii. Okay, thank you. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I'd like to ask if he thinks it's possible to get major donors to create what we could call a um, rapid response media fund to promote progressive issues, which not to get past the barriers of the corporate media. So with enough money, we could write through to everyone by buying advertising time on programs like Dancing with the Stars, especially sports like the Super Bowl. So for example, your House of Representatives passed a great spending bill, but most Americans have no idea what's in it. And if we had such a thing, we could already have widely spread actual quotes from the Mueller report we could be letting everyone know about Mitch McConnell's refusal to lock foreign interference in our elections. Yeah. I think we got um, it, David. Let's ask Congressman. Let's let Congressman Pocan respond. Yeah, David, so I don't know if there's enough money out there to try to be an equal to corporate media that's out there. So trying to compete on that level, I think, because I think people have talked about this and tried, it would be very, very difficult. I think we just have to be smarter about how we get the messages out. I think a good example is this last week, uh, after a problematic vote we had in Congress on getting assistance to the border to help the kids who are down there, the fact that we've had the co-
Codell's and then the Inspector General's report get the attention it's gotten on the conditions. Unfortunately, it should have happened before the vote. I think we would have been a little more successful in getting a stronger bill, which is what many of us had been advocating for. But we just have to work it differently. And as members of Congress, we have an obligation to do some of these things. And as a public, I think we have an obligation to push the corporate media to not just cover some of the stuff that they cover and, and fight harder. And we're going to have to use social media and programs like Tom's and others to make sure we're getting the messages out. But I just don't know if there's enough money to truly be the comparative contrast that's out there. So I think we just need to be creative, but not passive in dealing with this. Uh, David in Columbus, Ohio, listen to WGRN. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman and Tom. There's a problem that's deep in Ohio. It's uh, gerrymandering. It's also loss of votes. I think the recent Supreme Court decision really messed us up, and there's a period now where they're going to rewrite the election maps. And uh, how is House Bill 1 progressing? And I guess it went through the House, but what can Democrats do to get fair elections, and can they rally support from uh, Republicans? So we're going to break up H.R. 1 into some smaller bills and try to push those over as well and try to figure out how to get something through. The problem is Mitch McConnell's sitting on everything we send him. Every U.S. senator I talk to says the only thing they're doing is passing uh, conservative judges and they're not doing any legislation. So because of that, it's going to be uh, a little bit trickier to see how that's going to be able to proceed. But I think we've got a couple good bits of information, too. Seven governorships we picked up in the last election. So they can veto maps from bad legislatures like in Wisconsin, which will help have a better outcome in our state. Uh, or we can have just uh, hopefully the citizen panels, which is what we should be advocating for across the country. Uh, we can also make it an issue during the campaigns and make people have to respond to it and hold them accountable. We can uh, still try to move that federal legislation, although right now we're not finding a lot of Republicans being very receptive to democracy issues. But we're going to keep pushing this. And I think if we all do this from the grassroots up and from those of us in Congress, uh, I don't think you're going to have many people who argue it's not a good idea to have politicians drawing their own lines. We need to change that. It's not a good idea to have us drawing our lines. Yeah, and we need to change the makeup of the Supreme Court, which means take Absolutely. the Senate and the, and the White and, House. And that means 2020 means a lot, too. Right? Yeah, it's going to define the next, I think, the next 50 years of this country. Uh, Congressman Mark Pocan is with us taking your calls for the hour. It's Middays with Mark on the Tom Harbin program. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. This is the Tom Hartman Program. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan as in representative, Rep. Mark Pocan. And welcome back. John in Auburn, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Tom. And hello, Mr. Pocan. My question has to do with why are we paying two and a half million dollars for a parade that is filling up his hotel and making him a ton of money over the next three to four days? And what can be done about that? And, and yeah. I would add to that, why is it that apparently only the Republican Party is giving out tickets to the closest <laughs> area? I mean, yeah, isn't so that a violation of the Hatch Act? Oh, I think there's going to be lots of 
talk about this uh, after the fact. Unfortunately, John, they're having this all tomorrow, but the fact that we just found out they're redirecting funds that otherwise the Park Service would be using towards needed maintenance, the fact that we're finding out that they're bringing up some of these pieces of military equipment you can't even operate on the streets as if you should anyway, the fact that we're finding out that they're giving out tickets to the Republican Party, essentially to donors and using it in a partisan way. If the president has a speech tomorrow that in any way is partisan, that's going to be yet another problem. I think you can expect to see the proper oversight to happen. Unfortunately, a lot of this information is coming out fairly recently as far as some of the abuses that they're doing on the ticket and on the cost overrun to the National Park Service. But rest assured, none of us are happy and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this doesn't have the capacity to happen again. But on July 3rd, you're going to have what you're going to have tomorrow. Let's just see if the president has any restraint whatsoever when he speaks at the actual event. In other words, any respect for our actual country outside of his own political party. Can he do what he did when he read the speech when he was overseas and got all kinds of acclaim because he didn't put his foot in his mouth? Or will he go back to being Donald Trump like we're used to and somehow make it partisan? And right. Inform? We'll find out. David in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. So I just want to know why the FBI hasn't gotten involved with these border facilities. I mean, you know, back in the 60s, they went in the South. It just seems like this is a ideal situation for them to go in and do their stuff. All right, that's it. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks, David. You know, David, you make a really good point. Unfortunately, the people who right now are in charge of the Department of Justice aren't exactly friendly to doing the, the right thing. They're that would be Bill Barr, whatever. right? Right, yeah, they're doing whatever the administration wants. We've just watched what he did with the Mueller report, outright lying about what's in the report. You will have good people who are in the FBI, but they have to be directed to do it from the very top, and at the very top is rotten to the core because they've accepted that in order to work for this administration. We can't get that done. So it's extremely unfortunate, and you would hope. I mean, the situation with the children at the border, not only is it reprehensible by every value and moral I think that we have as Americans, but think about what it looks like internationally. Think about what it's doing to the kids. Think about all the other aspects of this, just so Donald Trump can try to prove to his base that he's fighting for the wall. It really shows who Donald Trump is, and I just hope that people remember that next November. We have to make sure that even our friends who may be a little more moderate or conservative realize, are you really served well by having him be the face of the United States of America? Yeah, there you go. Valerie in San Diego, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, my question is, isn't what the for-profit prisons and ICE doing complicit and illegal in aiding and abetting kidnapping and child abuse? And in fact, they're actually doing the child abuse. And can't they be arrested? And can't we at least threaten them with prison so that they stop doing what they're doing or in the future hold them accountable for this? Well, Valerie, that's the very debate we're having right now is, what do you refer to the conditions right now? And we're now seeing some video, luckily some is getting leaked out, and you're hearing the descriptions now by members of Congress and more, I think even more importantly, the Inspector General, completely neutral entity, talk about what's there. I think, in my opinion, that is child abuse. Now, whether you take it to the next steps of arresting people for child abuse or what we tried to do last week is the House Democrats had in our version of the emergency supplemental provisions that took the Flores Agreement and made it work for all facilities. You had to have certain standards in these facilities, and if a contractor didn't have them, they could lose their contract. And unfortunately, Mitch McConnell wouldn't 
compromise. He sent back the Senate version. Unfortunately, some people on my side were okay with taking the Senate version over the House version. And then here we are this week looking at these deplorable conditions. And we would have addressed that by having children kept shorter time periods in those facilities, having better standards, and having a real hammer over the contractors. So in my opinion, and I think your opinion, it's child abuse, but we really have to fix the situation. And I think public pressure right now may be the best thing we can do to fix the situation. I think most people really are of goodwill. You know, some are going to be a little tougher, but those one-on-one conversations are invaluable. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. Happy 4th of July to everybody, too. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Congressman. And back at you, happy 4th to you, too. You're a true American patriot. We really appreciate your being here. Thank Thank you, you, Tom. You, too. Appreciate it. Hey, let's talk about sleep. You know, there's some new studies out of Harvard and Johns Hopkins, really serious, solid stuff that show that chronic sleep deprivation can lead to depression, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Fancy word for, you know, like heart disease and things like that. Most of us need eight hours sleep. I mean, there is a spectrum, you know, from seven to nine, but the, the, the vast average is around eight hours sleep. And I've always been a light sleeper. My mom used to make jokes that I almost flunked out of kindergarten because I couldn't take a nap. And I'm really excited about this new product, the Pod by 8 Sleep. This is fascinating. One of sleep's biggest problems is temperature. It's tough to get a good night's sleep if you're too hot or too cold. And, And I'll tell you, Louise and I have very different preferences when it comes to this, you know, the temperature of the bed. And that's why I want to tell you about the Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. It was developed by leading sleep researchers after tracking 43 million hours of sleep. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and it adjusts the temperature of the bed automatically. That means if you like your bed cool, and your partner likes your bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed. Sleep longer and sleep deeper so you wake up refreshed and ready to take on the world. And to celebrate Independence Day, get a free gravity cooling blanket plus free shipping with your pod purchase, a $300 value, free. The offer ends Monday, July 8th. Visit 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P, 8sleep.com slash Tom, E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II by Sonia Purnell. This is from the prologue. France was falling. Burned out cars, once strapped high with treasured possessions, were nosed crazily into ditches. Their beloved cargoes of dolls, clocks, and mirrors lay smashed around them and along mile upon mile of unfriendly road. Their owners, young and old, sprawled across the hot dust and were groaning or already silent. Yet the hordes just kept streaming past them, a never-ending line of hunger and exhaustion, too fearful to stop for days on end. Ten million women, children, and old men were on the move, all fleeing Hitler's ranks, pouring across the border from the east and the north. Entire cities had uprooted themselves in a futile bid to escape the Nazi blitzkrieg that threatened to engulf them. The fevered talk was of German soldiers stripped to the waist in jubilation at the ease of their conquest. The air was thick with smoke and the stench of the dead. The babies had no milk and the aged fell where they stood. 
The hordes drawing overladen old farm carts sagged and snarled in their sweat-drenched agony. The French heat wave of May 1940 was witness to this, the largest refugee exodus of all time. Day after day, a solitary moving vehicle weaved its way through the crowd with a striking young woman at the wheel. Private Virginia Hall often ran low on fuel and medicines, but still pressed on in her French Army ambulance toward the advancing enemy. She persevered even when the German Strukas came screaming down to drop 110-pound bombs onto the convoys all around her, torching the cars and cratering the roads. Even when fire planes swept over the treetops to machine-gun the ditches where women and children were trying to take cover from the carnage. Even though French soldiers were deserting their units, abandoning their weapons and running away, some in their tanks. Even when her left hip was shot with pain from continually pressing down on the clutch with her prosthetic foot. Now, at the age of 34, her mission marked the turning point after years of cruel rejection. For her own sake, as much as for the casualties she was picking up from the battlefields and ferrying to the hospital, she could not fail again. There were many reasons why she was willingly jeopardizing her life far from home in aid of a foreign country when millions of others were giving up. Perhaps foremost among them was that it had been so long since she had felt so thrillingly alive. Disgusted with the cowardice of the deserters, she could not understand why they would not continue the fight. But then, she had little to lose. The French still remembered sacrificing a third of their young menfolk to the Great War, and a nation of widows and orphans were in no mood for more bloodshed. Virginia, though, intended to go on the road, wherever the battle took her. She was prepared to take whatever risks, face down, any dangers. Total war against the Third Reich might perversely offer her one last hope of personal peace. Yet even this was as nothing compared with what was to come in a life that drew out into a Homeric tale of adventure, action, and seemingly unfathomable courage. Virginia Hall's service in the France of summer 1940 was merely an apprenticeship for a near-suicide mission against the tyranny of the Nazis and their puppeteers in France. She helped to pioneer a daredevil role in espionage, sabotage, and subversion behind enemy lines in an era when women barely featured in the prism of heroism, when their part in combat was confined to the supportive and the palliative, when they were just expected to look nice and act obedient and let the men do the heavy lifting, when disabled women or men were confined to staying at home and leading off a narrow, unsatisfying lives. The fact that a young woman who had lost her leg in tragic circumstances broke through the tightest constrictions and overcame prejudice and even hostility to help the Allies win the Second World War is astonishing. That a female guerrilla leader of her stature remains so little known to this day is incredible. Yet that is perhaps how Virginia would have wanted it. She operated in the shadows, and that was where she was happiest, even to her closest allies in France. She seemed to have no home or family or regiment, merely a burning desire to defeat the Nazis. They knew neither her real name nor her nationality, nor how she had arrived in their midst. Constantly changing in looks and demeanor, surfacing without notice across whole swaths of France, only to disappear again as suddenly, she remained an enigma throughout the war, and in some ways after it, too. Even now, tracing her story has involved three solid years of detective work, taking me from the National Archives in London, the resistance files in Lyon, and the parachute drop zones in the Haute-Leur, to the judicial dossiers of Paris and even the white marble corridors of CIA headquarters at Langley.
My search led me through nine levels of security clearance into the heart of today's world of American espionage. I have discussed the pressures of operating in enemy territory with a former member of Britain's special services and ex-intelligence officers from both sides of the Atlantic. I've tracked down files that were missing and discovered that others remain mysteriously lost or unaccounted for. I have spent days drawing diagrams matching dozens of code names with scores of her missions, months hunting for remaining extracts of these strange disappeared papers, years digging out forgotten documents and memoirs. The book, A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell. You know, while most of America is basically shocked and horrified by the stories and the pictures that are coming out of Trump's concentration camps, there is a small part of America, and, and I shouldn't say too small, it looks like maybe even a third of America is actually delighted, which is why the Trump administration allowed this inspector general's report to go out and go out publicly. I mean, they could have suppressed it just like they suppressed stuff coming out of the EPA and, and whatnot. Trump's base, though, thinks it's just fine that he's brutal and cruel. You know, when you ask these guys any questions about the southern border, their answer is, well, if people don't want to be stuck in those conditions, they shouldn't come to the United States, which is how, I mean, that argument is exactly how Trump and the media divert our attention from why these people are coming. Again, they're not coming looking for a job. That population, that was 15 years ago. People have actually, who came here looking for jobs, mostly from Mexico, they're going back to Mexico and have been for a decade. These are people who are fleeing a five-year climate change-driven drought, and who is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and accumulatively is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, us, the United States, number one. And number two, which is wiping out millions of family farms, and number two, Ronald Reagan started this American political meddling in Central America and sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. That's, this is the whirlwind coming back to us. And until the countries of the Americas, particularly the United States, we have to be in a leadership role on this, address these issues of the, disaster, the climate change disaster that's happening in Central America right now and the political and economic, well, the economic disaster that comes out of the climate change disaster and the political disaster that comes out of the years of, you know, Reagan and Republican presidents since him messing with, basically, governments in Central America. Until we deal with this, we're going to, much like Europe, accepting large numbers of refugees from Northern Africa and that activating a right-wing, racist, freaked-out white people base in Europe that has now given these right-wing parties, they're raised to the point where they're major players now in Germany, in France, in Poland, in Hungary. Poland and Hungary have been functionally taken over by these parties. Italy now, Greece. We're going to see more and more of this in the United States. So that, you know, as long as the media and the narrative is all about Trump and, quote, migrants, this is actually going to continue to activate Trump's base. It's going to activate his racist base. And as Congressman Pocan pointed out, it's also going to activate white middle class or working class people who have seen over the last 20, 30 years their wages steadily decline and haven't made the connection because the media never talks about it, that the reason their wages are going down is because their unions are being decimated as a consequence of Reaganism and because their jobs are being shipped overseas as a result of neoliberal trade policies. And instead, 
They're blaming, you know, pre-Reagan, they blamed the white workers, blamed black people for wanting their jobs. Now they're blaming Hispanic people. It's like, it's this whole snowflake culture that's promoted by the hard right. And, and I shouldn't even call them the hard right because they like being called hard, you know, by the fascist right or by the pathetic snowflake right. But Democrats need to, every time they talk, every time we talk about the crisis on the border and the horrible conditions, we need to point out that these people are not migrants, they're refugees, and that they are fleeing political violence that we helped create, and that they are fleeing climate change that is destroying their ecosystems and ruining family farms and throwing people into poverty that we helped create, in addition to the horror and the brutality. So, you know, I think that these are all things that we need to be talking about. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, I can see why CPB officers were being so physically and sexually threatening toward me. Say what? There's a story there. Officers were keeping women in cells with no water, told them to drink out of the toilets. And this was the officers being on their good behavior in front of members of Congress. She says, people drinking out of toilets, officers laughing in front of members of Congress. She said, after I forced myself into a cell with women and began speaking to them, one of them described their treatment at the hands of officers as psychological warfare, waking them up at odd hours for no reason, calling them whores, etc. Tell me, what does this have to do with lack of funding? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And now we discover that there's a Facebook group with 9,500 members. There's only 20,000 people who work for Customs and Border Protection, CBP. 20,000 people. As Alexander Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, there are 20,000 Customs and Border Protection agents in the U.S., 9,500, almost half that number, are in a racist and sexually violent secret CPB Facebook group. This isn't a few bad eggs, she tweets. This is a violent culture. God bless this woman. She's going to be president of the United States someday. It's amazing. Representative Ilhan Omar tells the story, this is disturbing. This is disgusting. This is the agency we trust to address the migrant crisis at our border. This only confirms our worst fears, and we cannot continue to give blank checks to ICE and CBP. In this Facebook room message board, they were talking about a 16-year-old Guatemalan who died in their custody, and one of the guys who apparently was there, oh, well, if he dies, he dies. They were talking about the Salvadoran father and his daughter, Oscar Alberto Ramirez, and his daughter Valeria, who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande. Oh, that was edited by Dems and liberals. We've got a serious problem here. And meanwhile, the CPB officers, they said Ocasio-Cortez, quote, screamed at them in a threatening manner. A reporter who was there, Jonathan Katz, he says, nope. Everything I've seen about her, her, her leading the tour is a lie. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing what's going on here. We need congressional hearings and we need them now. You know, now that uh, Louise and I are pushing our late 60s here, uh, under eye puffiness and bags under the eyes and all that kind of stuff is kind of something you start noticing, right? And uh, for a couple of years, I people, you know, People have recommended everything from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags, but frankly, none of them work. Uh, what really works well, and what Louise absolutely loves this stuff, is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under-eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible, with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, 
or wrinkles or under eye bags. You can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm, it really works. Wow, the uh, grassroots group Never Again Action says they're blocking the road to the Elizabeth Detention Center, Elizabeth, New Jersey, holding signs reading Never Again for Anyone and Jews Demand Freedom for Immigrants. This is a, you know, a Never Again group of largely Jewish people who are saying, here, this is uh, Tate Phoenix, one of the protesters, said, I am a Jewish Latina. The military camps where my people are being held today are concentration camps, just like the camps my people were held in 75 years ago were concentration camps. That's why I'm here. That's why we're here. Another said, as Jews, we were taught to never let anything like the Holocaust happen again. We refuse to wait and see what happens here now. Three dozen people arrested as they were protesting this. This is absolutely incredible. I also want to get into what a mass atrocity is. This is pretty amazing. A mass atrocity is defined as a government intentionally inflicting harsh conditions, pain, distress, on civilians for political purposes. That's what a mass atrocity is. Now, they vary in their severity from death camps to terrible imprisonment to arguably the Tiananmen Square, those kinds of things. But a pediatrician who studies this stuff and has actually written about this and visited Cambodia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sri Lanka, and other places all around the world, this pediatrician, first of all, he said that what we have here are concentration camps. He said that they're comparable to torture facilities. Just leaving the lights on all night on these children the UN defines that as torture. We used that as a way of breaking people when we were interrogating what we thought were Al-Qaeda people in Afghanistan and Iraq. But he goes on to say these harsh conditions have been intentionally inflicted on children as part of a broader plan to deter others from migrating and therefore meets the definition of a mass atrocity, a deliberate systemic attack on civilians. And like past atrocities, it's being committed by a complex organizational structure made up of people at all different levels of involvement. Teach First posted this over on DU, but it's basically, this is coming out of a piece by Kate Cronin Furman in the New York Times. And add to that, First Lady Laura Bush, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, she's married to a war criminal herself. Her husband lied us into the war in Iraq, which led to thousands of American deaths and hundreds of thousands if not over a million Iraqi deaths, over five million Iraqis displaced, the Iranians essentially taking over Iraq, which is going to make any war that Donald Trump wants to have with Iran very, very problematic. And then, you know, Bush and Cheney having Jay Bybee and John Yoo write these papers, and apparently Brett Kavanaugh was right in the middle of this. These were among the papers that the 97% of his papers that the Republicans refused to allow to be released during his hearing before the Senate, which should have just shut down the hearing, but it didn't because Mitch McConnell, he doesn't care about democracy. He stole a seat 
from Barack Obama in a way that will go down in history as one of the most shameful things that has ever happened in the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell, a man who obviously is spitting in the face of American democracy. But when the wife of a man who tortured and murdered people who, in many cases, you know, the people who were picked up, many of them were sold. We were paying a bounty, right, for al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And so people were just turning in their neighbors who they didn't like. We were paying a 5000 bucks, which is like two years worth of living expenses in Afghanistan. You know, her husband oversaw this and the torture that followed and all this kind of stuff. When she comes out and says this, and I'm going to read what she said, I think we all need to go, whoa, this is from businessinsider.com. She says the reason for these separations, she's talking about separating children from their parents at the border, and she's talking about the Trump administration. She says the reason for these separations, this is Laura Bush, is a zero tolerance policy for their parents who are accused of illegally crossing our borders. I live in a border state. I appreciate the need to enforce and protect our international boundaries, but this zero tolerance policy is cruel. It is immoral. It breaks my heart. Our government should not be in the business of warehousing children in converted box stores or making plans to place them in tent cities in the desert outside of El Paso. She said, using these detention facilities to house thousands of children is, quote, eerily reminiscent, end quote, of the internment camps that held 120,000 Japanese during World War II and are, quote, again, from Laura Bush, now considered to have been one of the most shameful episodes of U.S. history. So not only does Mitch McConnell go down in history as a man who intentionally sabotaged democracy in the United States and wounded our republic, but the wife of George W. Bush is saying that Donald Trump essentially will too. So the question, I guess, if the refugee crisis here and our response to it meets the definition, this, this climate refugee crisis meets the definition of a mass atrocity, what do we do about it? What does the UN do about it? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you. Chris in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Chris, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? What to do? I could speak to the issue on mass atrocity. I have volunteered with asylum families. We need to fix the immigration system. I think that's pretty key. What people need to understand is, I read up on immigration law, and the law states that these asylum families have to have children. These families are traveling hundreds of miles on foot with barely the clothes on their back. Their immune systems are weak. That's why children are dying. And then, as you know, last week, we had that poor father and, and, daughter, and uh, yeah. daughter die, which was, it's a travesty. It's inhumane. This is a humanitarian crisis. It is mass atrocity. We have to just continue to move forward. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I love, we need progress. They are conjuring up the spirits of FDR, not only FDR, but Eleanor Roosevelt. Children would have continued to have died in factories had it not been for Harry Hopkins. You know, Elizabeth Perkins, Eleanor Francis, Francis Perkins is her name. And yeah, and she Perkins, and yeah. I think it was her sister or it was the sister of somebody else in the administration actually was doing surprise inspections of these factories. They went to West Virginia, in fact, and were doing surprise inspections in the textile factories and busting them, shutting them down when they found child labor. We need to bring back that spirit to the Democratic Party. We need to be a progressive, you know, a progressive party. Yeah. 
And you know the biggest challenge to that, Chris, aside from the Supreme Court decisions that will have money into the race, is the corporate media. It's yep. going to continue to be a huge challenge for us. We'll see where it shakes, you know, how it shakes out. Chris, thank you very much for the call. Michael in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Michael, what's up? Yes. Uh, hi, Tom. This morning, Congressman Pocan was talking about not understanding what child abuse or neglect is, the legal definition, and as well as a caller called in asking how you report it. And I have the answer to both. My wife and I were talking about this last night. Texas Department of Family and Protective Services report abuse, neglect, or exploitation has a 24-hour hotline and an online service available 24-7 nationwide. It's a central place to report child abuse and neglect. Right. Further, the legal definition of abuse and neglect is referenced on this site, and there are 60 words. Can I read uh, two of them? You Those may, words. certainly. Mental or emotional injury to a child that results in an observable and material impairment in the child's growth, development, or physical functioning, be causing or permitting the child to be in a situation in which the forementioned was caused, that's abuse, and there's neglect, which leads me to believe that I'm sure it would seem that somebody's called this hotline, and if yeah. so, does this mean that the Department of Homeland Security and the Border Patrol are above Texas law? Yes, they are. There's, there's, they? there's this thing called the Supremacy Clause that puts the federal government above the state governments, and, yeah, and this so. has been rigorously enforced since the Civil War. And I would add, Michael, um, I get your point that you, know, you could call your state hotline, and particularly in Texas, and, you know, and say, I'm reporting abuse, but those resources are very stretched thin, and they will not have the ability to go into these facilities, and they that, can't take on the federal correct. government. That, Right. That's and, correct, but it also right. applies. And I don't mandated. want people calling those numbers and tying up telephone lines when people who are legitimately reporting legitimate, and not to say this is illegitimate, but they, you know, they can't do anything about it. But somebody calling up and talking about the neighbor next door has got their kid chained up in the basement. Um, I don't want that call not to go through because so many people are calling to protest. The people to call, Michael, are your legislators. You've got one congressman or woman, and you've got two senators. And then you've got a whole bunch of state legislators you've got you have a state senator you have a state representative you've got a governor those are all those are all people that you can and should be calling and absolutely raising hell with michael i i totally agree with your sentiment but be careful you're listening to tom hartman visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archive Hey, we've got a new video up for supporters of our program over at TomHartman.com. You can find the links to it, and it's about socialism. Well, really, it's about how the red states love to practice socialism, and the blue states are, to use the language of Republicans, libertarians, and objectivists, the victims of socialism. The blue states are funding the red states in the United States. And if the blue states would simply say to the red states, hey, raise your own damn money, you would have states like Mississippi that gets $2.02 for every dollar they send to the federal government literally going out of business. Louisiana, West Virginia, North Dakota, Alabama, South Dakota, Kentucky, Montana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, South Carolina, etc. So check it out. I think you'll find it fascinating, this new video. 
You can find it over at TomHartman.com and at Patreon.com slash TomHartman. And welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And loving what you do, Alan Ratner's newest book. And on the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio. Bob, what's going on in the world? Oh, good afternoon, Tom. Well, we're looking at the federal judge who has blocked the Trump administration policy denying the bond hearings, and that's the federal judge in Seattle. This is bond hearings for refugees in the southern border. Yes, sir, for the refugees in the southern border, and he blocked the policy, and this policy came up because Attorney General William Barr in April issued that order, which would prevent immigration judges from granting bail to asylum seekers, and that was a vow by President Trump to end the, quote, catch and release, where people are caught and then released in the sense of allowed to, you know, go out about society until they would come back for their hearing. Right, and over 90, my, my recollection was 96 or 97 percent of these folks yes, actually come back and show up for their hearings, which Trump and the Republicans were just lying through their teeth about, saying these people would just go away and never come back, and that's absolutely not true. They want to have their hearing. They believe they have a case. Well, yes, and they do come back. Now, of course, Attorney General Barr in April issued this order because, you know, how word gets back through communities, and if people thought that they would have to just sit in a detention center somewhere, a detention camp, you know, for a, a year or two period, then the Trump administration would hope by them hearing that they wouldn't come in the first place, right. for example. Right. And That's so that, the that was a complete objective to it, and then the judge has said, hey, this is unconstitutional. Now, unlike the census, which they lost on, and they're not going to try to do anything because they would set that back so far, this will be different. This will continue probably, most likely, up through the United States Supreme Court with this case. And there's no way that the Trump administration won't continue this case. Yeah. Okay. I would assume. Yeah, you well. know. So now, in the meantime, does that mean, is there a stay in effect? Does that mean that refugees who are in these facilities can actually have bail posted for them and they can get out? Or does that mean that they still can't? That would mean, I believe, that they still could. I mean, okay. they can get bail posted. Now, if they take and do this into the appeals court, I don't know if they can do an emergency appeal on this or not, Tom, that right. I don't know. Right, okay, so we'll I'm have to get sure. some more information. But I do want to make a point, though, because you've asked the right question. Here's the point. The Attorney General can make another rule, not the same rule, but some other rule that they could devise legally to once again put another hurdle through the system for asylum seekers, uh -huh. which, which comes back to the fact until there's some kind of comprehensive reform, which good luck in the Senate side of it, to spell these things out, they will continue to be the executive-level decisions. In other words, the President of the United States. And in the meantime, we're continuing to pay $750 per child per day to companies like the one that John Kelly is on the board of directors of to house these children and refugees in basically dog kennels. Exactly. Mind-boggling. Just because these court cases are coming, and just because, quote, temporarily the administration's lost doesn't mean it's over with. Other new rules can be put on immediately. Well, and if they deny them bail, then these for-profit corporations continue to get their $750 per person per day fee. So they've got to be lobbying the Republicans and the Trump administration to say, yeah, don't give them bail. You guys keep paying us. Sure, it's privatization like private prisons. There's yep. a lot of money in it. Yeah. And it's an abomination. This should not be happening in the United States of America. It is. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Something I wanted to put on the radar screen in case people haven't heard of it, companies are looking to design safety standards for driverless cars. And, mm. the, and the reason that's going to be important, that there's going to be a slew of companies, and they're going to define, try to define safety, what they call safety metrics and validation methods, and they're hoping to potentially cash in on an industry-wide standard for driverless cars. And, you know, right now, there's current safety standards that govern the designs of our motor vehicles, right? But there's nothing, Tom, that covers the car's technical specs and the validation of those specs, how they're going to perform in a safety manner. And the reason I mention this is because this isn't going to be some legislative move to the Congress, you know, the House and the Senate. This is most likely going to go through the White House. And, and there's not going to be a lot of attention paid to this. And if it goes through the White House, they do this in the form, you know, the rulemaking process, <clears throat> which means they'll take in questions, they'll take in ideas and specifics, but they'll do what they want to do. Then the only way around this is for Congress to go overturn it. So they just run it basically through the DOT, through, uh, I think that's Elaine Chow, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because I heard her name mentioned while I was uh, yeah. listening to come on the show. Yeah. And we know who her husband is. Right, Mitch McConnell. So, yep. Right. So, therefore, this is a big deal. This is billions and, and billions of dollars, and so, number so, one, money-wise. It's also safety. Yeah, so this is basically the car make makers trying to get ahead of the legislative process so they can nail exactly. this down before Congress does. Through the executive. Which exactly. which could turn out well or could turn out to be a train wreck. Like I said, this is a big deal safety-wise, and they're trying to get some industry standards. And right now, the sympathy towards them, and I did want to mention this, right now from the government, it's for them to come up with their own voluntary standards. Right. Fascinating stuff. I always learn something from you, Bob. Bob Nay Thank with you. Talk Media News. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. Great talking with you, and have a happy 4th of you July, too. my friend. You too. Thank, Thank you very you. much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. This is page 121. This is the part about the June 9, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. Participants in the June 9, 2016 meeting began receiving inquiries from attorneys representing the Trump Organization starting in approximately June 2017. On approximately June 2, 2017, this would be six months into Trump's presidency, Goldstone spoke with Alan Garden, general counsel of the Trump Organization, about his participation in that June 9th meeting. The same day, Goldstone emailed Vetzel Niskaya's name to Garden, identifying her as, quote, the woman who was the attorney who spoke at the meeting from Moscow. 
Later in June 2017, Goldstone participated in a lengthier call with Garten and Alan Futerfus, outside counsel for the Trump Organization and subsequently personal counsel for Trump Jr. On June 27, 2017, Goldstone emailed Emin Aglarov with the subject Trump attorneys and stated that he was, quote, interviewed by attorneys about the June 9 meeting who were, quote, concerned because it links Don Jr. to officials from Russia, which he has always denied meeting. Goldstone stressed that, quote, he did say at the time that this was an awful idea and a terrible meeting. Emin Aglarov sent a screenshot of the message to Kavaladze. The June 9 meeting became public in July 2017. In a July 9, 2017 text message to Emin Aglarov, Goldstone wrote, quote, I made sure I kept you and your father out of this story, and, quote, if contacted, I can do a dance and keep you out of it, end quote. Goldstone added, quote, FBI now investigating, and I hope this favor was worth for your dad. It could blow up. On July 12, 2017, Emin Agalarov complained to Kevaladze that his father, Aras, never listens to him and that their relationship with Mr. T has been thrown down the drain, presumably Mr. Trump. The next month, Goldstone commented to Emin Aglarov about the volume of publicity the June 9th meeting had generated, stating that his, quote, reputation was basically destroyed by this dumb meeting which your father insisted on, even though Ike and me told him it would be bad news and not to do it. Goldstone added, I am not able to respond out of courtesy to you and your father, so I'm painted as some mysterious link to Putin. After public reporting on the June 9th meeting began, representatives from the Trump Organization again reached out to participants. On July 10th, 2017, Futerfuss sent Goldstone an email with a proposed statement for Goldstone to issue, which read, quote, As the person who arranged the meeting, I can definitively state that the statements I have read by Donald Trump Jr. are 100% accurate. The meeting was a complete waste of time, and Don was never told Ms. Vetselniskaya's name prior to the meeting. Ms. Vetselniskaya mostly talked about the Magnitsky Act and Russian adoption laws, and the meeting lasted 20 to 30 minutes at most. There was never any follow-up, and nothing ever came of the meeting. End of quote. Redacted by Bill Barr, the statement drafted by Trump Organization representatives was redacted by Bill Barr. He proposed a different statement, asserting that he had been asked, quote, by his client in Moscow, Emin Aglarov, to facilitate a meeting between a Russian attorney, Natalia Vetselniskaya, and Donald Trump Jr. The lawyer had apparently stated that she had some information regarding funding to the DNC from Russia, which she believed Mr. Trump Jr. might find interesting. Goldstone never released either statement. On the Russian end, there were also communications about what participants should say about the June 9 meeting. Specifically, the organization that hired Samo Charnov, an anti-Magnitsky Act group controlled by Vetselniskaya and the owner of Prevzon, offered to pay $90,000 of Samo Charnov's legal fees. At Vetselniskaya's request, the organization sent Samo Charnov a transcript of Vetselniskaya's press interview and Samar Charnov understood that the organization would pay his legal fees only if he made statements consistent with Vetselneskaya's. Samarchov declined, telling the office he did not want to perjure himself. Page 123. The individual who conveyed Vetselneskaya's request to Samar Charnov stated that he did not expressly condition payment on following Vetselneskaya's answers, but in hindsight represented that by sending the transcript, Samar Charnov could have interpreted the offer of assistance to be conditioned on his not contradicting Vetselniskaya's account. Volume 2, Section 2 of this report discusses interactions between President Trump, Trump Jr., and others in June and July 2017 regarding the June 9 meeting. That would be in the second part of the report about obstruction of justice. 
Item six, events at the Republican National Convention. Trump campaign officials met with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the week of the Republican National Convention. The evidence indicates that those interactions were brief and non-substantive. During platform committee meetings immediately before the convention, J.D. Gordon, a senior campaign advisor on policy and national security, diluted a proposed amendment to the Republican Party platform expressing support for providing lethal assistance to Ukraine in response to Russian aggression. Gordon requested that platform committee personnel revise the proposed amendment to state that only appropriate assistance be provided to Ukraine. The original sponsor of the lethal assistance amendment stated that Gordon told her, the sponsor, that he was on the phone with candidate Trump in connection with his request to dilute the language. Gordon denied making that statement to the sponsor, although he acknowledged it was possible he mentioned having previously spoken to the candidate about the subject matter. The investigation did not establish that Gordon's spoke to her was directed by the candidate to make the proposal. Gordon said that he sought the change because he believed the proposed language was inconsistent with Trump's position on Ukraine. It's the Mueller Report. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Before I pick up your phone calls, I just wanted to share a couple of sentences with you here. The president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, this is the licensing agency or accreditation agency for pediatricians for, and basically the umbrella organization for doctors who work with children, that's pediatricians, nationwide. The president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Saragoza, was allowed to tour two of the Customs and Border Protection facilities where these children are locked up. And what she had to say is just devastating. I'm quoting, this is the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a physician, a doctor. She said, when they opened the door, the first thing that hit us was a smell. It was the smell of sweat, urine, and feces. And then she continues, and this is where it sounds to me like what she's describing is that the Trump administration has broken these children, has just broken them. And you'll understand what I'm saying when you hear this. She continues, and I heard crinkling to my left, and I looked over there, and there was a sea of silver. There were young children in there, unaccompanied boys in there, and they had no expression on their faces. It was a room full of silent children. There was no laughing, there was no joking, there was no talking. All I could hear was the rustle of those silver mylar blankets. I described them almost like dog cages with people in each of them, and the silence was just hard to watch, hard to see. We have broken these children the way that you break a prisoner of war. Kids who don't laugh, kids who don't talk, I'm just devastated. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind yeah. today? Listen, on this immigration issue, and uh, some of these really just racist, xenophobic remarks that are coming out against it, uh, I tuned into Washington Journal on C-SPAN this morning, and a lot of the callers were complaining about assimilation. Right. And I, I think it's time for those of us in the non-xenophobic portion of society to start asking back of those people about their level of assimilation as proud, white, native-born Americans who haven't been able to assimilate to things like the 
Eighth Amendment or the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery or 19th giving women equal rights. More on the nose would be to say, oh, you want everybody to assimilate. So you're suggesting that the St. Patrick's Day, that we should stop celebrating St. Patrick's Day because it's Irish? Oh, my God. I'd start there in Erie, Pennsylvania. The, the vomiting never ends. I mean, this town is... <laughs> From all the green beer, right. And then oh you've got Columbus Day, which is now, you know, more or less an Italian and Spanish holiday, mostly Italian. Do you oh, want to do away with that? Is that really no, what you're no, talking about? And no, at that point, they'll go, oh, my God, no, I'm only talking about brown people. Oh, no, Tom. Those are a tradition. Right. Right. Yeah. Eric, thank you. That's an excellent issue, and you said it very well. I appreciate the call. Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? Well, Tom. Yeah. So this thing with Nike and the flag. Yeah. Um, you know, Nike, of course, is a money-making entity. Yep. And, you know, they are exploiting the flag. And, you know, the flag is a national symbol. And, you know, agreed, it's a powerful one. Like, if you're overseas or somewhere and you see the flag, hey, you feel safe. You know, but keep in um, mind, it's not the current American flag that Nike had put on these shoes. It was the Betsy, the so-called Betsy Ross flag. It wasn't actually designed by her, but she's given credit for it. And, you know, with the 13 stars in a circle. And because that was a pre-Civil War flag, that that was our flag during a brief period of time when we were a slave nation. Colin Kaepernick had warned Nike the right-wingers, the Peppy the Frog people, they're going to adopt these shoes as kind of the official shoes of the racist white right-wing. And, you know, Nike didn't listen, and they rolled the shoes out anyway. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And now Mitch McConnell is saying, I want to buy the first pair. Back to you, Eric. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I guess my understanding of that, my, you know, flag, the treatment of, a, of the American flag, right. um, if time has operated so that that's no longer or never was an American flag, so be it. But, you know, there's all of this, all these rules. If, you, if the flag touches the ground, you're supposed to burn it. Right. If, you know, uh, the flag is... Abby Rubin got arrested for wearing a flag. Oh. For we turning a flag things. into a shirt. Exactly. You're not Back during the Nixon to, era. Right. You're not supposed to turn the flag into fashion or put right. it on clothing or that sort right. of thing. You know, so, Although the Trumpets are doing that now, you know, the, the maggots. Well, you know, and there are, I've heard this comment before, it's like the flag, for those people that really, super patriots, you were talking about patriotism, and yeah. then, you know, the flag is a fetish. Yeah, or, no, it, it absolutely know. is. Eric, I want to, your, your point was well made. I want to get one last call yeah. in here before the end of the show. Mar Mary in Tucson, Arizona. Mary, you are on the air. You have the last minute. Hi, thanks very much. I just wanted to ask everybody, have you looked inside your Nike shoes? Where are they made? They're not in the U.S. Right, never so were. All this, you know, they're China, they're Sri Lanka, they're Venezuela, they're Vietnam. You know, before you start getting all upset, look in them. Well, on the one hand, that's true of most shoes. In fact, that's true of most products. Walk around in a Walmart, and you can, you can wander around a Walmart for an hour looking for a single product made in the USA and not find one. But that said, I have to congratulate or salute Nike for making Colin Kaepernick the face of the company. That was a huge move. That was a very bold move. And, uh, you know, Phil Knight and the guys, the, the, the men and women who are running Nike, 
in their marketing department. They took a huge chance on that, and uh, you know they should have listened to his advice. I think on this on this Betsy Ross flag, but but Mary, yes, we need to bring our manufacturing back. And wouldn't it be nice if Nike was making shoes in the United States again, or to begin well, with? Well, we didn't look for we did not look for that union label. There you go. Yeah, now I remember those ads from the ladies' garment union. I you know look for the union label. There you go, Mary. Thank you so much for the call, and thank you all for being with us today. It's just it seems to never end. I hope you have a wonderful Fourth of July, do great time with friends and family, and and use it as an opportunity, if appropriate, not to get into fights with people, but to wake people up. Tell them about our show, for example. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It starts with you. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.